Father, you are amazing. You have made us your own. Thank you for all you've done. Lord Jesus, we stand amazed in your presence for your willingness to die in our behalf, to become sin for us, even though you knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God through you. Spirit of God, thank you that you illumine our understanding with the word of God, that you guide us and convict us and empower us to bring glory to the only God that is. Help us this morning to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Yesterday, I was privileged to be a part of a change of command ceremony on the Newport Navy base. My skipper, Commander Booker, finished his time there. He did an excellent job. What a, what a great leader he has been these couple of years he served. And while Admiral Young was speaking of all the accomplishments of Commander Booker, it was impressive. He listed numerous impressive statistics of Commander Booker's tenure. During Commander Booker's speech, he rightly acknowledged that the accomplishments were those of the unit. While Admiral Young was saying, um, Commander Booker did this, and this, and this, when it was Commander Booker's turn, he said, through the work of our sailors, we were able to accomplish these things. It was right for him to make that acknowledgement. From a military or business perspective, those accomplishments are always associated with the one with whom the buck stops. That's the way it goes. But when it comes to the blessings of those in Christ, the accounting is altogether different. While in some settings one gets credit for the work of many, in God's judicial system, many get credit for the work of one. It is Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law. It is Jesus Christ who defeated the flesh. It is Jesus Christ who overcame sin, who defeated death, who nailed sin to the cross. It's Jesus Christ who vanquished spiritual forces who were against us. But the believer in Jesus Christ is united together with Him, and thus we benefit from the victory won by Jesus Christ. Let us look, please, at the passage that we have before us this morning. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all all trespasses 
having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Listen, as we come to this passage, what we will have to see is our union, our connectedness with Christ. Paul has already told us, just in the previous verse, that we have been made complete in Him. Look at what it says in verse 10. And you, believer, are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. Paul has just expressed the fact that the believer is complete in Christ, and what we must note is that we are complete in Christ based upon our union with Christ. It's it's what Christ has done that has provided for our completion. It's our unity in and of Him that has provided the basis of that completion. So Jesus has made us complete. You'll notice in verse 11, it starts with, in Him. You'll notice in verse 2, two times he uses the expression, with Him. It says in verse 12, buried with Him in baptism, in which you are raised with Him through faith in the working of God. And so we've got this, this union. In verse 13, he does it again. And you, being dead in, the, in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him. The emphasis here is upon this union, this connectedness, this, this forever intimacy that we have. When a person comes to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are born again they are immediately placed into an intimate and eternal union with Jesus Christ. Let me just refer to a couple of Scripture passages that will be on the screen behind me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, here's what God's Word says. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. The long and the short of that passage is this. When we came to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we were baptized of the Spirit, placed into the body of Christ, and in that placement we have this eternal union with Jesus. It's an eternal union. It's an intimate union. His record becomes our record. His defeat of death becomes our defeat of death. His payment for sin becomes our remission of sin. His resurrection becomes our guarantee of resurrection. His fulfillment of the law becomes our fulfillment of the law. His victory over demonic forces becomes our victory over demonic forces because we are in Him. Jesus Himself said this in John chapter 14. Listen to what He said in verses 19 and 20. 
He says, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, listen, and you in me, and I in you. Do you see the intimacy? He's in the Father. We are in Him. And He is in us. Intimacy, union, connection, everything changes when we come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. We are united together with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. And so with that being said, in the few moments that we have together, in verses 11 through 15, we want to note five benefits of our union with Jesus. Five benefits of our union with Jesus. The first of these benefits is this. Victory over the flesh. Victory over the flesh. He starts in verse 11. In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now he starts to talk about circumcision. This is a great scintillating conversation. Everyone loves a good circumcision story. Right? Don't you? It's like You like eat, sleep, and live stories about circumcision. The idea here is not the physical circumcision that you know a, a, a young man undergoes after they're born. Not that. Not, not even the circumcision of a Jew on the eighth day, which was um, indicating that they're they're in and among God's people. That that they're part of this covenant that God has made with the people of Israel. It's not even that kind of a covenant. He's very very specific. The the circumcision he's talking about is not a physical or fleshly circumcision, but a spiritual circumcision. It's something performed by God. He says in verse 11, "In uh, In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Not a ceremony. Not a symbol. It's not physical. It's spiritual. This is something that's been produced without hands. Now you... You tell me about a circumcision that took place without hands and we're talking about something quite unique. This expression made without hands is only used two other times in our New Testaments. Once in Mark chapter 14 where Jesus said this, we have heard him say, I will destroy this temple that uh, is made with hands and in three days I will build another one not made with hands. So we're talking about something spiritual there, right? Very clearly. Not talking about a physical temple that will be rebuilt in three days. Talking about a spiritual temple. Uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this statement has been made. For we know that uh, if the, the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And so we're talking about something spiritual. If it's not fleshly circumcision, what kind of circumcision is he talking about? Well, let me just remind you of this. You know, you look at the Old Testament, sometimes we have a skewed version of, of what the Old Testament's talking about, and we, we look at only externalism in the Old Testament. Just remember, God is the same. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is the same God. 
So don't look at, at even Old Testament circumcision as, okay, this guy's got this fleshly thing take place to him, now he's one of God's people. No, he's now in the covenant community. He still needed something else. There's more to be done than this. And Moses was very clear about it. He said it in Deuteronomy 10.16. He said it in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah also brings it up in Jeremiah 4.4. But I'm just going to point your attention just to Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, where it says this, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. What kind of circumcision is that? Is that a fleshly one? No. No, he's talking about a spiritual circumcision in the Old Testament. Under the law. You see, the law never has. It doesn't. And it never will redeem. The law never has. It doesn't and it never will make us right with God. The law never has. It doesn't, and it never will make us pleasing to God. The law can't do that. The law tells us the standard. It doesn't meet the standard. Even the fulfillment of that standard does not accomplish the task. There's something more than external, cold, orthodox behavior. God wants your heart. Now, we're not talking about that thing that beats in your chest that only has one function. It pumps blood, and in the process, the oxygen is spread around. It does all those wonderful, great things. It doesn't, ever, doesn't make you feel happy. Your heart doesn't make you feel sad. The heart doesn't let you love people. Your heart doesn't keep you from loving people. Your heart doesn't have a spiritual function, that thing that beats in your chest. God is interested in our heart. It's the, it's the who we are. And God says, I want a circumcised heart. I want you at the core of your being. And what he says is, I'll do it. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Who? He will. Same thing that's going on here in Colossians chapter 2. He says this, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He's doing this. Paul also refers to a spiritual circumcision elsewhere. Take a look, please, at Romans chapter 2. I'm asking you to turn in your Bibles this time. This one's not on the screen. I figured you wanted to move your fingers a little bit. Romans chapter 2 and verse 28. Paul refers to this spiritual circumcision here in Romans chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 28 and read now through verse 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And you'll recall in Philippians chapter 3, he tells the Philippian believers, Gentile believers, he says, you are the circumcision. You're the circumcision. What does he mean? God has saved you. 
He has changed you from the inside out. He has circumcised your heart. That's the call. That's the method. Okay, so what what does this all do? The spiritual circumcision is designed to break sin's mastery over us. This circumcision is designed to break sin's mastery over us. Well, how do I know that? Well, back in Colossians, you don't need to go back. We read it in our scripture reading, and I read it two, two or three more times already. He says, by putting off the body of the flesh. That's the phrasing that he uses. By putting off the body of the flesh. Circumcision puts off the body of the flesh. Okay, well, I'm, if I put off the body of the flesh, guess what I am? I am dead. So is he speaking literally here? No, he's trying to teach us something by a figure. He's trying to say, you need to die to that which controls you. Well, here in Romans chapter 6 now, you're in chapter 2, just turn over to chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, he's talking very similarly in Romans 6 as he is in Colossians chapter 2, very similar concepts throughout this passage. He says this in Romans 6 and verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be what? Slaves of sin. So when he's talking about by putting off the body of the flesh, he's talking about the fact that we're no longer under sin's mastery. Let me ask you a question. You're a human, right? And you just had a week, right? Seven days, 24 hours each day. How was it? Was it a good week? I hope it was a good week. Did sin, did, did sin creep in at all this last week? Like even once? Did you sin even once this last week? I'm, I'm guessing that you did. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, when he, when he says, by putting off the flesh, well, okay, now, now I'm not any longer going to give in to sin, right? Am I made perfect by this spiritual circumcision? The, the answer to that is, uh, no. I'd like it to be the case. I would love for God just right now to say, Rob, I'm going to take your propensity to sin away. You'll never sin again. You'll, you won't even desire to sin. I'd love that. That'd be like the greatest day I ever had. In the very context of Romans chapter 6, where he's talking about being crucified with Christ and that we should no longer be the slaves of sin, he gives us some follow-up information. Take a look at verse 12. He says, Therefore, speaking to the same people, do not let sin reign. What does it mean to let sin reign? To be ruler. To dominate. To be your master. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have what? Dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Again, he's talking about sin's mastery. He says, in him you were circumcised by a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the, of the sins of the flesh. So, here we are, we're feeling good. God is doing this work and he's, he's removed sin's mastery. How did he do it? How did he do it? By the circumcision of Christ. 
he again is tying us back into this concept of intimacy and union. Because it's not saying that, well, Jesus on the eighth day, he was circumcised, and so because he was circumcised, you were circumcised. It's not, not that kind of tying in. The circumcision that he's intimating is paralleled in Colossians 1.21. He's talking about through his death, burial, and resurrection. By Jesus Christ's own experience of death, burial, and resurrection, he has removed the power of sin from your life so that sin no longer can master you or dominate you when you are given over to him. Here's what Peter says. Same subject matter, similar at least, in 1 Peter chapter 4, and verse, verse 1. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Listen, we have victory over the flesh because of Jesus' victory over the flesh. We are blessed by our union with Christ. The reason that we can go through life and not have sin dominating us as a believer is because of what Christ has done. Now, now does that mean that there hasn't been a period where you've given yourself over to sin? That's a different matter altogether, which is what we're talking about in Romans chapter 6 and verse 12. He says to these ones that have been crucified with Christ, hey, listen, don't let sin have control because we can yield ourselves to sin. Hey, listen, do what comes naturally. You will be mastered by sin. But he says the counter to that is to present yourself to God as those that are alive from the dead. And so when we present our, our instruments or our members as instruments of righteousness, guess what happens? Righteousness. This is, this is our blessing in Christ. Christ has done this. So here we are, we're, we're, we're working our way through Colossians chapter 2, and he's telling us about how we are united together with Christ, and the first benefit of that is that we have victory over the flesh. There's a second one as well, a second area of victory or blessing, and that's found in verse 12. Take a look back in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12. The second benefit of our union with Christ that Paul is referring to here in this passage is victory over death. Victory over death. In verse 12, he writes, Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Our union with Christ means that we were in him in his death, and in him in his resurrection. This is the great thing about being united together with him. Everything he did, there I was. This is how God removes our record and our debt of sin. He's removed it forever, anyone that's trusted Christ, and a new record is put in its place. What is that record? Righteousness. Whose record is it? Jesus' record. Because of our union with him, we were buried with him. We died with him. And because of our union with him, we were resurrected with him. This is why Christ has removed the bondage of death for his people. Now, I'm going to ask you a specific question for your own consideration. Are you afraid of what happens after death? I'm not asking you afraid of death because 
I don't think that there are too many people on this earth that aren't really afraid of that process. Like, you know, you, you want to find out you're not going to, like, be drowning in a lake or be caught in a fire. We, we, we don't like the thought of what that process will be like. You don't think you're going to show up at a baseball game someday and a bat's going to come flying into the stands and impale you. This is not what you have an expect, expectation of. That is a fearful thing. So I'm not asking, are you afraid of that process of death? I'm asking you, are you afraid of what happens after death? Because Jesus, for those that trust in Christ, has removed the bondage. Of death. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Fear of death. Paul refers to, uh, to Jesus as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So, first Christ, afterwards those who are in Christ. Our union has given us victory over death. I don't have to fear what's going to happen to me when I die. I might not like the process. I might not like the thought of, of, of being, um, going through chemo and, and dying from cancer. None of us would look forward to that. It would be foolish to look forward to any of that. But I know on the other side of death, I have nothing to fear because Jesus Christ has won a victory over death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory over death, this is what he has done. The believer has no need to fear what happens after death. Now, as we look at Colossians 2, and it's talking about baptism, what I wanted to point out to you is that water baptism provides a visible representation of what this verse is speaking about. This verse is not speaking about water baptism. But water baptism provides a visible representation of what this verse is speaking about. This verse is referring to what God has done spiritually in the life of the believer. All you have to do, rather than even like, like getting into the Greek and figuring out the tenses, it, you don't even need to do that. All you have to do is read the passage like three or four times, and what you're going to notice is, He circumcised us without hands by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, He made us alive. He has forgiven. He has. He has. He has. That's what you have through the whole passage. You don't have to wonder, oh, is he telling me to do something here? No. I'll tell you at the end of the passage that there's something he asks us to do. Um, It's implied something he asks us to do. But the reality is this is a working of God. And so we're not talking about physical baptism, which does picture what's being spoken of. We're talking about spirit baptism, which is what God does in the life of a, of a believer. Romans 6 also refers to this spiritual baptism. It is through spirit baptism that we are united to Christ. And we talked about that, remember, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are placed into Christ. We're placed into the body. That's spirit baptism. The spirit does that. Based upon our union with Christ, we have victory over death. So we have victory over the flesh, victory over death. Here's a third benefit of being united together in Christ. You might like this one. 
Forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin. Verses 13 and 14, look at what it says. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Notice this. Sin produces both spiritual and physical death. Sin produces both spiritual and physical death. Now, we will die someday, most likely. You know, unless the rapture takes place, Jesus comes back and takes us out of here, and when we leave without dying, the, the, the reality is most people die. The reality is, you, the way you can say it as a, kind of a, a, a real statement, everyone dies. Everyone dies. And it's because of sin. It's not like because you sinned in this way you died. Because of sin, our bodies decay. Not necessarily because you sinned in a certain way, your body decays in a certain way. Because Adam introduced sin into the world. Therefore, since that time, everything has been decaying. The creation itself groans. The creation itself wants to be redeemed. It's struggling because of sin. And it didn't do anything. Creation didn't sin. Adam sinned. And we follow suit. Sin produces that physical death, but it also produces a spiritual death. And here's what he's talking about. He says at the beginning of of verse 13, and you, being dead in your trespasses, let me say it like this, you were dead. That's straight to the point? Let me ask you a question. What can dead men do? Dead men tell no tales. Nor do they brush their teeth, or eat, or shower, or put clothes on, or do their hair, or shave. They don't do anything. Dead men don't do anything. Okay. Have you ever heard someone say, man, I had the steak the other day, and it was so raw, I, it was actually mooing. <laughs> Have you heard someone say that? That's a lie. Dead meat doesn't moo. Because it's dead. It doesn't do anything. Well, this is important, friends, because sometimes we think that dead people do things. And he's making a point that dead men don't do anything. What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that in and of ourselves, in order for there to be a union with Christ, in order for my sins to be forgiven, in order to have a relationship with God and eternity with Him, a miracle needed to take place. And it's not a miracle of me. And it's not a miracle of you. Am I capable of producing a miracle? No. Are you? No. He has made us alive together with Him. He has done this. That's the miracle. How How has He done it? Having forgiven you all trespasses. Now the trespass is what made us spiritually dead. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The the trespass is what made us spiritually dead. And He has made us alive because He has moved aside that verdict. He has satisfied that verdict. He has forgiven 
all our debt. A gracious pronouncement of forgiveness is what is going on here. How did he do this? God doesn't simply forgive people because he's a loving God. Please know that. I'm glad he's loving because he wouldn't have done what he did if he weren't loving. But he doesn't simply forgive us because he's loving. There was a debt accumulated that needed to be settled, which is what verse 14 introduces us to. Look at what it says in verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. If you want to really have a a shorthand understanding of what that verse is saying is, it's a handwritten IOU. It's a handwritten IOU. Here's what happened, friends. God's law demands. I do not fulfill those demands. I have broken the law. And I have accumulated the debt. It's a debt that I had to write an IOU for. And here's what Jesus did. He took that debt. And he nailed it to the cross. Right along the accusation that was made of him. And when he bore my sin on that cross, that sin debt was canceled. It was, it was met. It was fully Accomplished. Here's F.F. Bruce makes this statement. Our failure to keep the law has turned this certificate into a bond held against us to prove our guilt. It is this bond representing the power which the law has over us rather than the law itself, which Paul views as canceled by Christ. This IOU, this is now my wording here, this IOU categorizes our sin. And the way Paul says it is it's written out Jesus took it and nailed it on the cross. And you remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross, there was an accusation. What did it say? Well, (laughs) depending on which version you read it from, right? Was it the Greek version, the Roman version? Was it the the Hebrew version? Uh, There were probably three statements there on the cross. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Something to that effect. It was an accusation that Jesus died for. And the imagery that Paul tugs on is my record of debt was hung above Jesus. Nailed to that pole, that tree. And he died there. Bloodied and broken. To pay that sin debt. When he did this, That sin debt was forever canceled. Having forgiven you all trespasses. That IOU is gone. It's gone. You see, we look at being in Christ, and and it's not just this, this theological concept. Being in Christ has very practical Elements. It causes us to have victory over our flesh. Sin does not have any right to have dominion over me. It gives us victory over death. I don't have to fear death. I know what's happening. When I die, I will be in the presence of the one who is my judge, who is my savior, who is, has taken the dead out of the way. And, and this great benefit 
Forgiveness of sin. All my sins are taken away. They're all squared away. Every one of them. He goes on to tell us, and this really is more by implication, that our union with Christ is a fulfillment of the law. Now again, this is implication. This is not specific. Here's what he's telling us. Because of our union with Christ, all of the law's demands have been met for us. There will never be an accumulation of any further IOU based upon our personal failure to meet the demands of the law. And here's how Paul writes it in Romans 8.4. He says this, The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now he's talking about in my everyday life, when I am filled with the Spirit, I meet God's demands. I don't meet God's demands because I'm really spiritual and I really know all kinds of things and I've really come so far in my spiritual life. I meet the law's demands by being filled with the Spirit, which is why at the end of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, it says, against such there is no law. You don't need a law because you'll do the law. Nothing needs to be written down. The Spirit produces real fruit. So there's this fulfillment of the law. Lastly, lastly, in addition to victory over the flesh, victory over death, forgiveness of sin, and fulfillment of the law, we have this benefit by being in Christ, and that's this victory over satanic forces. Mm -mm -mm. This is good news, friends. Look at verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In what? When he was nailed to the cross. Picture this scene, friends. Picture the celebration taking place among the hosts of demons while Jesus hung, bloodied on the cross. Picture the the phraseology that they're using. Can you picture them saying, Behold your Savior! Can you picture them saying something like, We have killed the Son of God! Or, even further, we have killed God. There He is! Lifeless on a tree! The Roman soldier buried a a spear in his side and blood and water flowed. He's dead and lifeless on a tree. There's your God! Anyone care to share the song? Up from the grave He arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. Think about it, friends. They went from celebration to disarmament. Can you imagine the disappointment from the death of God in their mind to him reigning victoriously over them. He has disarmed them. He made a public spectacle. Well, how does all that work? Well, we can only kind of guesstimate, not guesstimate, but but use Scripture and compare Scripture. And and ultimately, I, I believe, as Jesus goes down into Abraham's bosom, where Old Testament saints awaited their redemption because Jesus had to be the first fruits of those that rose, Jesus proclaims victory to these waiting their redemption to be completed. He proclaims victory, and across that gulf, the, the, the host of demons hears Him tell them, it is finished! And they in all of their misery, recognize that their doom is sure. 
made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Their celebration became their disarmament. Let's quickly review key statements from the passage. And we're just going to use my own words. Some of it will be quotes. Some of it will be just uh, portions of the text. Circumcision made without hands. By the circumcision of Christ. The working of God. He has made us alive. He has forgiven you. He has wiped out the handwriting. He has disarmed principalities. He has triumphed over them. Who does all of this? Who does all of this, friends? Who's the hero of the text? Jesus is the hero of the text. God is the hero of the text. He is the one that accomplishes this. What is He looking for from you? Look at verse 12, please. Buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him. What are the next two words? Through faith. Through faith in what? The working of God who raised Him from the dead. The working of God. He wants us to know He is the redeeming God. He wants us to experience victory in Christ. That victory is only ours in Christ. What does He want? Believe Him. Faith. Trust Him. It is not about you. It is not about your record. It's about Him and His record. Let's pray together. Father, You are faithful. Help us. Help us that we would serve You with hearts filled with joy and rejoicing. Help us to believe You. We look at what You've done and we marvel at Your glorious grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.